Hello, I'm Alma Schneider. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the proud mother of four children, one of whom has Prader-Willi syndrome. And I am Iris Miller. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor and the proud mother of two children, one of whom has quadriplegic cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. In this podcast, we discuss the uncensored truth about raising children with disabilities. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. This is Two Moms, No Fluff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to... I was about to say Take Back the Kitchen. Welcome to Two Moms, No Fluff. I'm Alma Schneider, and I'm here with my partner in crime, Iris Miller, and we are really excited about a very special guest that we have today for our episode. Iris, would you like to give a little intro to our guest? Yes, I'm very, very excited to introduce to you all Catherine Kathy Shields, who's a writer who writes about parenting, disabilities, and self-discovery. She's a retired educator with a Master's of Science in uh, Exceptional Education. And uh, Kathy, if it's okay with you, I'll let you introduce yourself to our audience. Okay, thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you so much. Yes, as, as you said, Iris and Alma, um, I'm a t- retired kindergarten teacher. I taught for 25 years until I retired. And once I retired from my job, um, I went ahead and started working on my lifelong goal of, well, goal of writing a book about my daughter who has a disability. Um, she had moved into a group home when she was 28 and that was 12 years earlier. And so I started writing the book and realizing that there was a book there. It, it started in when I was teaching in my class. I would in the afternoons I would write little little blurbs about stuff, but then it morphed into something else. And and then the next thing I knew, I was creating a book. And then it took a lot, you know, maybe seven or eight more years to finally get a publisher to agree to publish it. And here I am now. At, at- and I want you. You had mentioned something to us when we first met about. Um... The fact that you had sent this to how many publishers who rejected it, um, and then got the one that did that that heard you and saw you. Uh, I sent it to a hundred. Well, I started out with agents because that's what writers do. They query right. agents. So I queried about the first fifty. Then I realized I had to get um, an editor to help me with it, and mm-hmm. I think I went through three or four editors until I finally found the last one. Um, that uh, that helped it push it over the edge and what happened was after the next uh, the after the first editor I had I think I queried another 20 or 30 people and that made 80 and then I was still getting rejections and by the time I got like up to about 150 I contacted the last editor she was amazing she had written a book about having a baby that had passed away um, right after birth um, had complications and so she understood the subject. She really got it. And then after that, I had 10 offers for um, 10, 10 requests for the full. That means they want to read your whole manuscript. And then I had, th- I think, three, two or three offers to actually publish my book. And I took the one with Vineley's Press. And, wow. and that I was 180. Altogether, yes. I had 180 queries. And I wanted everybody to hear that. People who have who have something to say, you're going to get a lot of rejections, but I love the fact that you really stuck with it because you knew that this was a topic that was going to be important. All right, well, let's rewind. I want to ask you, so if you're comfortable letting us know um, your daughter's diagnosis and what it was like 
when you first learned that she had this diagnosis, this disability? Um, well, my daughter, Jessica, is a twin. And so when they were born, everything was fine. She had a little bit of oxygen deprivation. This is 1983. So mm -hmm. they didn't seem to, the neonatologist didn't come running in and saying there was a problem. They gave her the oxygen and then they said, okay, she's fine. The other baby was uh, very jaundiced. They were more worried about her, ironically. Um, but as they grew, uh, you know, the months went by, one twin was doing a lot more than the other one. And that was a little bit of a sign, but the doctor, the pediatrician said, you know, twins develop at different rates. I accepted that. But by mm -hmm. the time she was two, she was um, a lot really developmentally delayed. It, and uh, she, was, she was making her milestones, meeting her milestones um, just under the radar. Like, like you're supposed to walk by the time you're 20 months. She walked at 19 months. You're supposed okay. to talk and make noises by a certain age. And she would do it, but not really well. So he sent me to a neurologist at two years old. Um, I went to the neurologist and the neurologist told me that my daughter had cerebral palsy. It was mild, but it was cerebral palsy. And that was the first shock. And he okay. didn't say anything about being developmental, uh, intellectually um, dis disabled. He just said, basically, she has cerebral palsy. And uh, when I called back a few days later to say, are you, are you saying she does or do you think she does? Because he didn't make it like definitive. She has mm -hmm. cerebral palsy. And he right. said, oh, you're quick. That's what the doctor quipped when I called back. And he goes, I go, what do you mean I'm quick? He goes, most parents take a year before they call back and ask what, what's really happening. He said, they wow. don't really accept it. Then, um, so we, we enrolled her in all kinds of therapy. She went to an early intervention program. And mm -hmm. she was tested there to get into the program and she qualified under physical disability, but they also did a, a battery of tests. They gave her an IQ test and her IQ was borderline normal. That's what they called it then. Okay. I think that's, that was the term they used. Um, mm -hmm. And so she was three years old and she was in a special education program with the other kids. Some of them were in wheelchairs. Some of them, everybody had different varying exceptionalities. Mm -hmm. And that was pre-K. But when the time for her to go to kindergarten came along, they did another test. Um, they were going to place her in the kindergarten position uh, program. And so they tested her to find out, well, what's her IQ? And it came back. She was, her IQ was like 50, maybe it was mm -hmm. 40. And it was, he said, then they said, I don't think they said it was profoundly retarded, but they said way low, way below what she had had tested at three. And they said, well, this is a different kind of test. And I kind of didn't believe them. And they were going to put me in these programs and they were saying, well, go look at this program. And all the programs I looked at in public school were like horrifying. The kids were just sitting there like drooling. And I, that's mm -hmm. not my daughter. So mm -hmm. I went to a, a hospital, a, a children's hospital here in Miami and said, I want an evalu a psychological evaluation. I want, I want you to help us because I didn't mm -hmm. believe that this was real. And when mm -hmm. I got there, they had all her testing, all her records, and the, the doctor, psych, the psycho, I think it was a psychologist, met with us. Mm -hmm. We don't have to do testing. We don't have to test her. You've already had all these tests. What's happening is you're not accepting what's real. What's happening is your daughter's profoundly retarded. That's the wow. word she used in 1986. I think it was 86. And I was like, that's, that's not right. What, we came here for you to help us to give right. us some, you know, answers and give us some solutions. What can we do to fix And some hope, maybe. And some hope. Yeah. And, and, he said, 
Yeah, he said, well, you need counseling. You're, you're just not, you're not accepting this. And we see parents like this all the time. Their children are adorable. They're either autistic or they're this or they're that. And they just can't take it. He goes, we see that. And a lot of times these children are physically very, very attractive. And your child's very, very attractive, but you're not getting the whole story. We're going to give you the truth. And wow. I, I just shut down. I couldn't believe it. I said, no, 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 no. And I was really angry. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think it was, a, the, the, I think the thing that made me write my book was the denial. It went on for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to fix her. I was going to send her to all the therapies, everything I could think of. And I did. I sent her to a lot of different programs. She had physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, mm-hmm. and I was going to make this be a kid who was going to be completely like her sister, normal. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to be just fine after we right. get through this. And I think it took till around the age of 12 or 13. That's a long time. But to really say, I get it. I, I, I'm trying to change her, but it's me who needs to change. And that she's not, she's not broken. She's not, nothing's wrong. This is who she is. Who it, she was is. My, it was my attitudes about it. And that, and I realized that, and mm-hmm. then I started accepting. I did everything I could, though, up to that point, mm-hmm. and I still do. But mm-hmm. at that point, my attitude shifted, and I became more aware that it was I was just pushing against what was re- what was really happening. Was she uh, had had brain damage from the, the oxygen deprivation, mm-hmm. and that's what caused the cerebral palsy, and that's what caused some of the brain damage of, of her mm-hmm. to affect her intelligence. Before we get to the next question, can I just ask you, related to this, how do you think your life would have, or your dealings with your daughter, with Jessica, how would it have played out had you been told some of these things in a much a much more compassionate way? Do you think it would make a difference? Because I'm, I'm hearing it as something that was not compassionate, the way that you were told. Um, do you ever think about that? Um, so they, the, the psychologist encouraged us to get therapy, but mm-hmm. it, it didn't, yeah, I think he could have like explained, this is really important that you do get therapy or that you understand maybe a better explanation. It was mm-hmm. sort of like, you've got all this testing. This is the, these are the results and too bad. I mean, accept it. Basically they were saying, accept it. What happens if you can't accept it? What happens exactly. if you're struggling? And um, I think that would have helped. I don't know how how it would look the, in today's world in 2023. Because um, this is- Your doctor is all... would have been sued, FYI. <laughs> <laughs> in today's 2023. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it could have been a little, It would. I mean, I still would have been upset, maybe probably still been in denial because my idea was I'm gonna have this perfect life with my three children. Yeah, but saying that, okay, you can have a great life with a child who is different, you know, just saying like, it's okay, as opposed to you're in denial, because that saying that you're in denial, we just had another interview, a guest on who said, once a doctor, once someone says you're in denial, there's no discussion of anything, because they can just say, oh, she's not accepting anything, she's in denial, and so anyway, I just wanted to do that, Iris, you wanted to ask something? I know. Yeah, I I just uh, I'm listening to this and my ears are burning just because of the description yeah. of uh, you know the medical professionals and how they really can do such a better 
job in explaining the situation, in working yeah. with the parents and showing compassion and a bit more of an optimistic view for the family, for the parents. It's just painful to hear your story as, as the stories of many other parents. And this, although has improved a bit, is still an issue. There is a big gap between uh, the medical professional and their maybe need of facts and, uh, and the parents need for compassion and a pathway to move forward mm -hmm. in unfamiliar mm -hmm. journey. So uh, Kathy, if it's okay with you, uh, do you mind sharing a little bit uh, of the early years until you know your daughter became a teen? How, how was it for you as a mother and for her as a child? Um, I think it was, well, it was challenging because then I, I, I went from having one child to having three, I had twins. And that was challenging. And in the beginning, when the when they were babies, um, Jessica, the, the the girl, the child who had the problems, would do certain things would happen. She'd throw up. She I'd be spoon feeding her the baby food, and she'd vomit because she had trouble swallowing, which I didn't know that yet that she was having this trouble. Um, man, but it was fun because they were so cute. They were little and they were cute. And I would, you know, okay, this is what this baby's doing. The other, my first child had a lot of colic and so did, so did this child. So I was like, well, that's similar. So it was fun. And then as she, as I went into preschool with her and, and, and her twin was going to a different school at that point, because I had to enroll, I started enrolling her in special programs. And I wasn't sure if I was, should mainstream, um, like, I was encouraged to do that, but it seemed like she had more needs. And if I were going to get her to be normal, um, then she needed to have these special programs. And uh, so they were separated. And that was like a lot of um, negotiating strategies. How am I going to get from this school to that school to that school? There were three different schools. Um, so that was hard. And then she would frustrate me because she couldn't really speak very well. And I think when she was three and a half, she broke her arm and she was still wasn't speaking very well at all garbled but she blurted out my arm and that's how I knew her wrist was broken you know took her to the hospital so there was it was like there was hope there but it was so frustrating and difficult to yeah. to figure out what does she need what do I do yeah. um and scary it, yeah know? it was really hard and then it would make me angry I wanted to be this perfect mom um yeah do everything I could. And the other twin was kind of getting ignored. And she yeah. even says that, uh, that mm -hmm. even as an adult now, she said, well, you had to take care of my sister, but sure. so it was, it, it was guilt, a lot of guilt yeah. uh, and, 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 and frustration and anger. And I would get angry a lot at her mm -hmm. and realize that I have no business getting angry at her, but that was my emotional reaction. Yeah. And I was a stay-at-home mom for a, a lot of years uh, until they were like eight. And then they were all in, enrolled in programs. So I was decided to go back to work as a preschool teacher. But um, my husband helped some, but he was a full-time, he had a full-time job and he had a lot of demands. So, yeah. and and I was raised as a, as a woman who's you're supposed to take stay home and take care of the kids. And mm -hmm. that was my idea of what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Well, I really, we both appreciate your honesty, expressing, you know, the anger at not being able to be the, you know, the mom that you want to do, that your daughter wasn't being the daughter that you would, you know, expect a lot of people keep that 
you know, they don't admit to the anger and anger is a real piece of this. You know, it has to do with fear also, but we get angry, we get frustrated and your anger, I'm sure helped with you becoming so vocal about it and an activist. And we want to know when did that shift come where you felt like, because I imagine that your writing has to do with um, sharing your story to help other people, which is a form of activism and just making it known. So when did you, if you can pinpoint it or just a general sense, when did you start feeling like I'm going to share this for myself and for other people? Do, is there an, do you have an idea um, about that? Probably when, when she was a teenager, when she was, when she was a, around when she was a teenager. Um, and it was becoming more and more obvious that she was different. She wouldn't speak uh -huh. like everyone else spoke. And I get the looks from people like we'd go to McDonald's and people would, you know, what's wrong with you as a parent? Yeah. I, I, and then my other two daughters would go, you can't, and I wrote about this in other articles that you can't, they can't talk to you like this, but I was not willing to verbalize. Well, yeah, you're right. They can't talk to me. Like I would just kind of uh, retreat, you know? Yeah like shy I'm I don't want to talk I don't want to I don't want to address this and I don't even want to deal with it anyway so why should I uh yeah, and it was none of their business I imagine you felt <laughs> yeah so I think around the age of when she was like 16 15 16 and I really was getting the idea that this is what this is what I've got and I've got a and I started writing about it more and more and then like you said the book was a, a, she was the catalyst for the whole book Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's, that not pain, but that angst I was feeling all, all that time doing all this, it had to have an outlet and that, and yes. my outlet became the writing. And then the writing became, I, I see how the world looks at her. And mm -hmm. even though she looks, um, she doesn't look physically disabled, but yes. when she speaks that she sounds different, but right. physically she doesn't look disabled. She looks, um, you know, like everyone else. And I've had a few friends say things like, look at our kids, they look normal. And I don't think that's fair, but uh, I, I have to say that I probably thought that too, like mm -hmm. kind of, I'm proud that that me too. And, and I'm ashamed of that, but. Well, it helps. I mean, I think that the reality is, is that it actually helps in a lot of ways, but in other ways, it doesn't help. As you know, because when you have an invisible disability, it is harder for people to, well, if somebody has Down syndrome and has physical features, people know automatically, oh, that's why they might be talking that way. People, you know, project all sorts of things onto the mother typically if there are things that seem awry, if they look typical. And it's a tough, it's a tough place to be. But um, yeah, the shame is, I think, um, thank you for you know, being so candid about that. It's, it's something that I think a lot of us feel, you know, that, you know, thank God they're, they're cute or thank God they're, uh -huh. you know, because it helps, you know, it helps if somebody's cute or attractive. So. Right. It helped me and it helped maybe helped her, but didn't help everyone else and all her peers that she was going to school with. And, and yeah, I feel like as I look back and I've grown from this experience, I am ashamed of it, but I think I had a lot of ableist attitudes right. that uh, that I had to challenge. Mm -hmm. Even now, once in a while, I'll, like I'll write something, and my older daughter is like, kind of like my editor, and she'll go, yeah. "You sound like an ableist. Don't write that." <laughs> and I'll go, "Yeah, it's there," and I have to like 
you know, censor myself. Yes. Or, or acknowledge it, that this is what society has helped. The society created all of the ableists, all of the ableist thinking we have is from society. So. Oh, I blame my mother. So. (laughs) Don't blame your mom. Society, blame society for what your mom did. But anyway, all right, Iris, do you want to say something? (laughs) No, it's funny to me. It's like a, it always goes back to us moms, no matter what. So she, she had this. She had an idea of. She was raised. She was like the only Jewish family in this little town in Arkansas. Little town. Wow. And wow. And the nineteen. She was born in the nineteen twenties. So I think that was that shaped her and yeah. affected her and affected her view of the world. And she yes. never went back there. When we were little kids, we never went and visited the family that lived in, still lived in Arkansas. I think she was a little ashamed of it herself. And she had these ideas of you have to look a certain way, you have to be ladylike, and you have to everything had to be like. She didn't even really like me. She didn't like I had curly hair. She didn't like that. She was like, but I she did I didn't look like the ads on TV in the 1950s. Right. So. Yeah. That's why I blame. I don't blame her, but yeah. in a way, that's where she came from that you had to repair Not her fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a sad thing that for many of us we still have family members that uh, you know even being seen with our kids with disabilities is a painful thing for the family members. So it's just hard sometimes a to do things as a family for many parents. B, it's hard to get support from those family members and C, it just aggravates all of those looks, reflections that we get from society in general about our kids. It's almost uh, being multiplied in our own homes because of family members that have that point of view about disability and the part that it takes or shouldn't take in life. And uh, we all want to be always looked at as, you know, our kids are just a normal part of society and disability is a normal part of life and we all will be disabled at one point or another in our life but the reality is that we have the rejection coming from within so many times and it's very very hard so I wanted to ask you Kathy if you can share a little bit about the teenage years and transition to adulthood how how was that process for your family how was that process for you personally if you share can share okay um so when Jessica was around approaching 18 um I remember I didn't know anything about what I was supposed to do next I would just wait for I would talk to other parents mostly. That was the biggest help. Talking to them, what are you doing? What are you doing as far as planning this? And uh, I, she was able to go to high school until she was 21. Um, right. And I found, I, I had her in a, a public school and then I moved her back to Easter Seals and she graduated from there, which was great at 21 in a culinary arts training program. They were gonna train her to work in a school cafeteria. It didn't end up happening that way, but she but she liked it um uh teenage years well you know I had to deal with her becoming you know a young woman and starting her her menstrual cycles and she she has she is not someone who is coordinated about taking really good care of themselves you know sometimes Mm -hmm. I'll have to go go back and make sure she washed her washed all the shampoo out of her hair you know Mm -hmm. so think about that time of the month that was hard. Or sometimes 
she would, you know, have trouble cleaning up after herself after the bathroom. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, that was, that was the case, you know, from early on. So it wasn't like, oh, this is a big deal, but it became a big deal when she started having, having her periods. And then yeah. um, she did something funny. <laughs> this is in my book. She, we went to Disney World with her. I took her to Disney World and my, my uh, brother and his wife wanted me to come meet them there. And she was getting really tired and the, the wife was going, oh, just take her to one more ride, one more thing. And Jessica was tired. So we had rented a wheelchair because she can walk, but she was getting tired. So she was really dragging. And it was like time to go probably three hours earlier. I should have left. So my uh, sister-in-law said, let's go to one more ride. And Jessica stands up. Can I say this on your podcast? Please. She, 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 she gets her, puts her hands on the, on the handles and pushes herself up out of the wheelchair and stands up and goes, fuck you, mommy. <laughs> and everyone in, everyone, it was like a big circle of people, like everybody backed up and it was like the spotlight was on us. That, yeah. was, that was, that's my most memorable experience of her being like a 16 year old. And, yeah. you know, she has dribbles all over her shirt because she's messy and she, it was, <laughs> I, and then she kept saying she was sorry. She knew she shouldn't do that, but yeah. what was you she have to say? laugh. You have to laugh or else you'll cry. <laughs> Mommy wasn't bad. listening and I listened. I took her right. home. But, right. um, so she, uh, then, uh, then in the point, um, so I was visited by somebody from the Department of Children and Families. I don't know, how, mm -hmm. I guess the school helped me set that up. It was mm -hmm. sort of like I was in a in a bubble. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just flying by the seat of my pants. What yeah. next? What next? What next? And he said, "Well, we can get her in on Medicaid, Medicare, Med waiver." She had got the Med waiver, and he set right. it up. He was very, very helpful. Sign this, sign that. And somehow, when she was 21, and nowhere to go after I age 21, there was a program called CHC, which is now called the Wow Center in Miami, and they had an opening. And they, they didn't generally have openings. So they had an opening and I got her in and she um, went straight there instead of having to stay home and me figuring out what am I going to do with her all day long? She didn't have to stay home. She went there and it's an adult day training program. Mm -hmm. um, so she got into that right away. And that's when I started thinking about next, what's next? Here mm -hmm. she is 21. What are we going to do? Um, you know, she couldn't really be left alone. When she was left alone one time, she... Uh, tried to teach her how to use the phone, and then she ended up calling nine one one accidentally. Why is that every person's go to? Nine one one. How about like information that you call one one? Why does it always have to be nine one one? Well, I had told her to hit. She couldn't hit all the numbers because she, she's not real coordinated, so she couldn't hit all the seven numbers. So I said, just hit star nine. Yeah. Okay. Well, she hit nine 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 and then one and one and that's yeah. how she messed up and yeah. the police came and they I realized I could never leave her home alone and yeah. that's when I started thinking about group home and then I started thinking about what's the future I mean yeah. am I always going to have someone have to watch her and I also had to think about what happens if she's on her own or I'm not here or my husband's right. not here and I had to think about what's going to happen with her if she was sexually assaulted and yeah. that that was another theme that I had to deal with. Um, we hired, uh, real, which is a very real thing that a lot of people don't talk about. The very high percentage of girls who have disabilities and and sexual assault, and it's a it's a really scary thing to think about. So um, I ended up finding 
um, uh, I, I talked to other friends, what are they going to do? And we talked about the different kinds of birth control, but what if somebody mm -hmm. stops for, or forgets to give the birth control? Or, um, I wanted to do something permanent. And, and I asked her and I talked to her about it and she said she didn't want to have any babies. We ended up um, uh, finding a doctor who, would, who was willing to do it. And I had, uh, I got, I went to the lawyer and I got a healthcare surrogate. I became her healthcare surrogate. And we said, we took her to the doctor and we said, okay, she didn't even, she couldn't really even exam, given her, uh, the gynecologist couldn't really even give her a physical exam because Jessica didn't want her putting her hands in there. So she mm. said, don't worry, I'll do it. I'm, I'll do the surgery and we'll do it when I'm looking at her. And when mm. I got to the hospital, um, I had my papers and I turned everything in. I got registered, but the day of the surgery, they didn't have the papers. And they said, no, nothing's here. I said, but I turned everything in. So somehow it got lost. And um, hmm. the doctor comes strolling in and she said, well, Jessica, do you want any babies? And Jessica said, no. And so then they were able to do the surgery. Okay. It, You're not it, her legal guardian? I'm not. Her, and I was doing it before I became her legal guardian because... Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, that's the other thing. Should I become her legal guardian? Or not? Right. And I wanted to do it once she, uh, before she was 21, before I had to go and apply to be her legal guardian, if I decided to do that, which I didn't right. yet. Um, right. Because it seems the lawyer said, you don't have to do it. She doesn't have any money and leave it the way it is right now. Um, right. But I had her healthcare surrogate, whatever, yes. I'm her surrogate. Um, right. And she was able to say yes or no. And she didn't have a, she didn't have guardianship. She could make up her mind and mm -hmm. she was over 18 she was I think right. she was 20 and a half and so we did do that um right. and it's controversial but yes. I think I made the I think I made the best choice for me and my daughter mm -hmm. yeah. for her and she she was the one who said yes to the doctor yes. well I didn't have to you know it wasn't I'm I'm doing something awful to you I'm making sure yeah. this is you know uh and then to the in today's world with the abortion what would happen if I hadn't yeah. done that and something did happen? I, I just can't imagine. So that was their growing up years. Well, thank you for, again, for being so candid because this is so helpful to people who are going through all of this to be open about it. We all need to have communication about all these you know, difficult things. Um, a lot of our listeners have younger kids, um, but a lot of them have older kids and we really want to address you know, her going into a group home and what that was like for you making that decision. So you talked about, okay, the safety aspect of it, how you were afraid she would get, you know, assaulted or you were afraid that, um, you know, you couldn't leave her alone. She, there was a danger there. But emotionally, what was that like to make that decision? Um, I think that was, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, maybe. Because mm -hmm. um, my other two kids are grown up. They're going to college. One of them was getting married. Um, Jessica was 28 when she moved into the group home. Okay. So she's been there. She's turning 40 this year. So she's been there 12 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing. And it was, I moved in, moved her in with another friend, had a daughter that it had similar needs and we were going to do this together. Mm -hmm. And, and it was great, but, uh, and we looked at different group homes and then we spent a couple of years, you know, we kept looking and then it was way too expensive. One place wanted, I think $5,000 a month, plus the social security. It was very, very wow. nice. It was a residential yeah. home in a beautiful neighborhood, but I, I didn't know it was that expensive. So I, I kept, I don't, I didn't know how we were going to ever 
maintain that for the, yeah. for the rest of our life. Um, yeah. So we put it on hold for a while. And then we found uh, another friend had moved her son to somewhere in Chicago, in Illinois. State mm-hmm. of Illinois had taken over her son's care. And, but when she went to visit him, everything was dirty. He was sick. No one was addressing his needs. And she moved him back here to Miami. And then she found a wonderful place. And she told us about it. She said, go look. So we went to look and moved, decided to move our daughters in together. And it was hard, but I had the partner. And that was wonderful having a partner to do it with. And unfortunately, it it, it wasn't the right fit for her. And even though I think she had great intentions to keep her daughter there, things were just not exactly the way she wanted it or for whatever reason and she moved her daughter back home um and then what was I supposed to do I was like frantic now what um my daughter's there there's there's a couple of people and the workers kept changing and they were just basically beginning this group home it was all girls they had another group home this was their second one Uh, Mm -hmm. but the staff was switching a little there were some disruptions but somehow Jessica my daughter did it. She did it. She, I mean, I kept thinking she's going to ask me to move home too, because her her friend did. I, that's what I was mostly afraid of the whole time. She's going to say, I want to come home too. So-and-so came home, you know, and after all those years of working to find an appropriate place. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, and and I don't blame my friend, um, though, though she might think like I do, I don't, um, it was just, what am I going to do with my kid and how right. am I going to maintain this and move ahead without her? But mm-hmm. we did it. Uh, she bonded with one of the people that worked there, one of the workers and mm-hmm. started calling her her other mommy. And it was, it, it was just a natural, natural transition. Jessica mm-hmm. didn't, didn't, you know, she didn't question it and she'd come home every weekend. So we would go, you're going to stay there during the week and you're going to go to your adult day training program, keep going there. And, and she has special transportation services and then come home, I'll pick her up on Saturday morning or Friday afternoon. And then I bring her back on Sunday night. And so we had a routine and I, you know, and, and she seemed to like that. She seemed to accept that maybe some other kid wouldn't, but my kid did. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> After 28 years of being so vigilant, um, it must be such a relief, you know, to know that she's safe and taken care of. Yeah, there's been little things that have happened, but mm-hmm. nothing major. I mean, mm-hmm. nothing. She got COVID last year. Um, mm-hmm. There And people have moved their children in and out for different reasons, various reasons. Not everybody stays in the group home. Right. And some people move to other group homes. But I've been at the same one for all these years. And yeah. Um, I'm pretty happy with it, but it's not ideal. It's not mommy and daddy. It's not perfect, but Mm -hmm. is she going to have that when we're, when we're gone? So uh, I'm looking at the future, like, Mm -hmm. you know, her future, our future. And I don't want to burden her, her sisters. And a lot of people have their kids stay home and then the siblings take care of the child person until they're, until they're gone. But I thought they could do this and do it the way I'm doing it. Bring her home on the weekend, visit her, and then send her back. And for some people, it's not a quote-unquote burden. For some people, it's it's a companion. It's they, you know, there might not be the um, the the required vigilance that maybe your daughter had or that other people have with their children. For some people, it's not a burden. But for um, 
for some people, I think there's a, there is a lot of judgment about, oh, why, you know, why did you send her off? There are a lot of reasons. And I think, I, you know, we really want to open the communication about that because there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of judgment. And I, and I've read that it's, and I know for a fact, just from talking to people that when people do keep their children home and they pass away, then they have to go immediately into a group home. It is traumatic. It is how much nicer to be able to have that transition with your parents and your family members being around to help you ease into that transition as opposed to all of a sudden when they're 50 or 60 years old, they have to change their entire life. It's, there are a lot of things to consider. So again, thank you for your honesty. It's really helpful, I think, to a lot of people to hear these, to hear these situations. And, and I'm glad you pointed out about the judgment because mm -hmm. uh, I know a lot of people whose children do live at home. And yes. I, I, they've never said anything to me like, why is she still there? Mm -hmm. Or made me feel bad about it, but I sense it. <laughs> yes, yeah. I sense it like, oh, you did yes. that. But you kicked her out. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and sometimes I wonder you didn't try hard enough. Is, is you know, this... you didn't try hard enough. You didn't, you know, work hard enough. You could have made it work. It's not their business. It's an individual decision with individual circumstances. And Iris, one more thing that no, one more thing that uh, is very important from this story is that not everyone stayed. People also need to accept the fact that you can try it out. And if it yes. doesn't work for your child, for your family, you can pull them out. It's not like a permanent, irrevocable decision. And this right. is the beauty of it, that families can try it out and see if it works for them or not and change their minds. And uh, I'm, I'm happy for you that uh, being that it was, as you said, the most uh, difficult decision you made in your life, that it did work out and it was successful both for your family and for Jessica and uh, I wanted to ask you as a, the next question, what is it that you wished um, you, you wish now that you would have known back then that when you were making that decision that was so emotionally <laughs> difficult, um, is there anything that if you could go back to yourself back then and, and share that information, what would it be? I, I wish I had had more people tell me that it was gonna be okay. and. Mm -hmm. And I think I was a little harsh on my friend when she moved her daughter out, like, like almost like a child going, well, you promised, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're in this together. I can totally yeah. understand that feeling. And I, under, I respected that she had to do what she had to do, but right. how hard it was for me, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, maybe it would have been easier if, if, if like four or five of us had moved in together and then yeah. one moved out. That's what I wish I could have had happen, that a, a group of us were together. Mm -hmm. And I hear there, some of the families are trying to create um, a, a Casa Familia, a, a group um, behind her adult day training program. They're trying to build something. And maybe my friend won't move her daughter in there, but mm -hmm. that's what I wish I had had then. I didn't have that then. And I thought it was better to move her early than we yeah. tell in the 40s 50s and that's how old some of these these people are now they're in their yeah. mid 40s and they've lived home all their lives and and I and I don't and I wish somebody who had said don't feel guilty that I'm not kicking her out right. um and there was a big element of I I can't do it because I'm tired of her and I'm kicking her out 
And yeah. I do feel that way sometimes. Like sure. I, at the end of the weekend, when she's been home all weekend, sometimes I'm like, I'm ready for her to go back. And then I feel bad about that. But yeah. I wish somebody had said it's normal to feel Parenthood is all about the ebb and flow of guilt, <laughs> whether you have a child with a disability or not. And um, I think that that's always important to remember. We're always second guessing our decisions, and but we know in our gut what is what is best um, overall. That doesn't mean it's perfect. Like you said before, it's not a perfect situation. It's not ideal. And I just want to comment that in our February 2023 newsletter, where we have your article, we have this wonderful article that you wrote about what it's like on the weekends when your daughter comes home and how you're like, okay, time to go back because it's enough. And you did this for 28 years every single day. And now it's just the weekend. So I'm actually glad to hear that you are willing to admit that. And that, because that's a reality. We all have conflicted feelings, but the reality is it's hard for you. And it's very, it's exhausting. And it's nice, you know, we're all getting older and it's nice to have some free time, which is what we had hoped for when we had children, that they would, take off. So in a way, it's a very natural progression for a child. It's the most natural thing in the world for a child to leave and go somewhere else, not to stay at home. That's the abnormal, you know, I don't want to say abnormal, but that's not the typical situation that we hope and expect for our kids. We want them to be as independent as possible, um, but safe and cared for. Sorry, Iris, did you want to no, it's, it's such an interesting conversation. And Kathy, I just want to, again, salute you for the honesty in which you are sharing all of those, you know, aspects of the decision making and the, the whole experience. I think that uh, we need more people. And I'm so, so happy that you're writing all of this. <laughs> we can all also go back to your book later on and, and read this because it's, it's, it's an important, uh, you know, thing, hearing it from another mom who went through this. And is this is your, your book is basically your journey, your journey through this whole experience that you yeah. share. Different yeah, um, well, yeah really it is. It. It's, it, it, it starts and ends kind of in the same place. And um, mm -hmm. I, I, I think I, I summed it up perfectly uh, with, with what I've written. And it, I've included my other two daughters' stories. They said it was okay to use their names. They, mm -hmm. even, they even said, I'm writing another article right now about them, about writing the story. Because Jessica said to me the other day, I'm going to write a story about you. Oh, good. <laughs> I said, okay, when you're right. But I love you. That was the story. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. So, so is there anything else that you want to share with our community here? Words no. of wisdom, positivity, some hope? I don't know. <laughs> No, I think that we covered most, most, almost everything. All right, great. Well, we really look forward to sharing the link once the book is out. We will um, definitely uh, be reading it. I'm looking forward to it, and uh, maybe we'll have you back on again someday when some oh, more writings. Be, and uh, we're so appreciative of of you taking your time to share your journey with us, and we wish you the best with the book. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me. I really do. Thank you. Lovely, lovely talking to you. Take care. Thank you. For more information, please go to com. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a five-star rating so more people can hear it. Thank you.